0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hi, everybody. We're here... uh, Oh, I first want to talk about this, actually. This just came out, and this is really meaningful, so hopefully every family gets one but this first one here uh these these booklets are kind of to summarize the visioning process but more not the process of just what we as a prayerfully as a parish as we've gone through this visioning process rediscovered who we are who God's called us to be um not that we really lost it but that God gave us kind of clarity on that and that's what that first booklet is for this and notice there are three different colors one's cream one's white one's gray and this cream one, which is an affirmation of purpose, is large print, which some people were saying, thank you, and then they went to the other booklets we were like, I hate you. So, uh, But these large prints just give us our tenants and a lot of the big foci of it. The second one, which is the the white one, is, well, it's what we'll be talking about starting next week, but grab a hold of this gray one and make sure that... We work our way through this as a parish. There's some daily devotionals and reflections and prayers for us to be doing. And they're not long. They're just a page long. But they're a way for us in a big church to start praying in unison, kind of on the same track, which would be really cool in this season when God's doing some amazing things. And as silly as it sounds, um, I, for one, am so thrilled with the new sound system. Um, we worked really hard on it because I really believe, actually, that it, it's about this. It's about that proclaimed word being clear, you know, Um, and as strange as that sounds, it's really important. That's one notch in the direction of of all this stuff, but that has nothing to do with these devotionals. So, um, read these and, and pray through them as well. All right, so we've been intimately walking through just sort of devotional reflections on some of the primary prayers of our liturgy. Last week, we did... Uh, the Prayer of Humble Access went really well, it was just meaningful time, and I've decided every time as we s- reflect on these and look at the scriptures contained therein, that we will um, listen to a piece of music, mostly because what I'm finding is that for these four prayers that we're talking about, um, they have a an overall affect or a hue, and interestingly enough, I hear certain music. When we pray these prayers, and so this song that we're going to hear today reminds me of the mood and the spirit of of this prayer. We'll listen to it a little bit later, but last week we listened to a great song called Only the Sick Need a Physician. Um, turn with me to this, and because I believe that repentance is a daily thing, until the day we die and go be with Jesus and are made completely new, As Luther would remind us, we are simul justus et peccator, meaning we're simultaneously justified and sinful, and therefore, we can't escape the need to confess our sinfulness. Um, And I love the confession for morning prayer, and I want us to pray this together. It's in the left-hand column of that page, so let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. according to Thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O Most Merciful Father, for His sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of Thy holy name. Amen. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would move in us, remind us, uh, show us of our need of Jesus, and then give Him to us as we... Meditate on the scriptural basis of this prayer and hear from your word today. Amen. Mm-hmm. So many of you have prayed this prayer for, you probably don't even want to count the years mm-hmm. on how many years you've prayed this prayer. It's one of my favorite from the prayer book. Prayer of Humble Access is another and maybe two of those other prayers that uh, we'll go over in the following weeks are as well. But it's pretty, the reason it's pretty epic um, is because there was no liturgical precedent for this. And uh, therefore, we determined that this really was largely Cranmer's composition. Most of the prayer book is not directly his composition, but more of his stitching and architectural framework of the received liturgy, plus an infusion of Reformation theology. But even the received liturgies that he was working with were five or six different sources, if not 20, that he was compiling to bring to us the first spoken English worship services we'd ever know. Um, But when we look into the background of this particular prayer, we find no precedent. He was not modeling this after anything else other than received prayers of confessions in other parts of the liturgy. So that's remarkable. But uh, I want to make a statement, then I'm going to ask a question of why this part is remarkable. So one of the things Cranmer did was um, with with morning and evening prayer, which are the two big anchors besides the Holy Communion service in the in the English prayer book, he was distilling something that was far more complex that was received in his time in the 16th century. In the 16th century, you had what were called, which are, which are morning prayer and evening prayer are still called in our prayer book, the daily offices. And do you know how, there's two in our prayer book, morning prayer and evening prayer, and now we've in 79 added Compline. But do you know how many were in Motion at the time of the Reformation. How many sort of services did a a Christian, particularly a priest or a monk, have to walk through in a day? Do you know that number? Yeah, it was about seven. Some people kind of split in seven, eight, nine, but it was right around there. Almost every sort of two to three hours, you were breaking for some little sort of service or liturgy of prayer. That was a daily office. Now in that daily office, you had your morning stuff and then the noon stuff and then the evening stuff. So here's what's interesting. In the 16th century, you didn't confess your sin until the evening. And Cranmer grabs those ideas of, of confession and moves them all the way to the beginning of the day. And if you notice, in morning prayer, it's almost the first thing that you do when you come. Why would you do that? To yeah, tell me about why preparing, confessing your sins to prepare for worship might be valuable. <laughs> yeah, you know, you get right between you and God. Right. You get your mix but... So tell me why maybe a Reformation theology versus um, a 16th century medieval Roman theology might emphasize putting those prayers at two different spots of the day. We're what? We... Say it again. We're sinners all the time, born sinners. Yeah. And, right. There's not, like, accumulated sin throughout the day to come back. There's just ever-present sin. (laughs) Yeah. Do you hear my brilliant wife? (laughs) So it sounds like she might have heard me talk this before or just instinctively knows this because she's, you know, brilliant. Yeah, I, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm giving with the right I'm hand, like taking with the left. That sounds like I listened to her teaching and now I'm teaching it too. That's right. That's the way to go. That's exactly right. I mean, a, a lot of the emphasis of confession of sin in in 16th century England and Rome was mm-hmm. confessing those things that we did throughout the day. It's like you kind of woke up with a clean slate kind of righteous and then you sort of worked your way and kind of sins throughout the day and need to bring those before the Lord. And it's an interesting move. And I, to be fair to what was happening, there were some Mm -hmm. Roman reformers of daily prayer, uh, offices that were starting to put stuff at the beginning. So it's rumbling in Rome that maybe we don't need to just confess at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. but, but maybe as Abby said, we wake up sinners, you know, we're, uh, we not only need to confess sins, but confess sin. you know and that's a big Reformation tenet. Oh, did you guys get the paper back there? It's a big Reformation idea, and that became a debate about sin in the sixteenth century was, is sin merely those things we do, uh, or is there sin inside that's just part of our bent and makeup that needs confessing too? And there, there became kind of nuanced philosophical arguments about that. But ultimately the reason, and the reason I want to point that out is not for all this cool historical factoid stuff, but just to point out that we confess at the beginning because we come into the situation sinners. It's why as cute as babies are when they're born from a mother, mother's womb, we, according to scriptures, name them a sinner too. They're a sinner. Now, you know, they don't look very sinful. Although some moms and dads who have to stay up in the middle of the night can feel the sin and feel the brokenness, there's something wrong with this. I'm waking up in the middle of the night, but uh, the original sin, right? It's at play, and it's very much a part of of this whole thing. It's One why it's the first hmm. two words a baby learns: no, "No and mine." No and mine, right? <laughs> very incurved, horrible, horribly, you know, sinful, rebellious things to right. No and mine are the first two words a baby learns. Thank you. So, when you're looking at your sheet, when you're looking at your sheet, notice how intensely, remember, so, there's no precedent for this prayer. Notice how intensely biblical this prayer is. And the first thing I want to say is, may you and I, when we talk to God, be so saturated with Scripture that our prayers tend to sound like Scripture, like this one does. Now, I'm sure this one didn't spontaneously combust out of Cranmer's soul, right? Uh, I'm sure you prayerfully walked through this and like a good artist or poet edited this down. But, coming out of him is this scriptural language that we're going to walk through and see and kind of devotionalize on today. And it's beautiful. And might we take a cue from Cranmer about our own prayer life that because we're so steeped in scripture, reading scripture, meditating on scripture, memorizing scripture, and I'm preaching to myself and hearing my own words right now, uh, that we start praying more according to the will of God, not because we're trying to, but because it's in us. Because the Spirit of God who breathed the Scriptures is interfacing with that word and praying out of us, right? And that's the beauty of this prayer. I don't think we realize, I mean, look at all the passages of Scripture that are either alluded to or somewhat directly quoted. We'll see some of them are more quotations and some of them are, I want you to feel the nature of this story. Um, We'll be looking today, we're going to use the King James translation and here's the reason why it's closest to the the English Bible that Cranmer was using. And that's where we'll see. Like, if you tried to look up these passages in the ESV or the NIV, you wouldn't see the parallels and just how scriptural Cranmer was trying to read as closely as you'd see it in something like the KJV, which, apart from being able to sort of get the the King's Bible and the Great Bible of the 16th century, will show you just how linguistically tied these prayers are. Um, And the first thing I want you to notice, too, just in general is that the prayer is corporate. It uses plural personal pronouns. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed. There's an emphasis on the corporate nature. It's why in in the original prayer books this was called the general confession, because it was the confession of and for everybody. In uh, medieval worship, you, you may have a priest inaudibly confessing their sin before God as they prepare to come to the table, right? Or in the daily offices, you might have monks doing this. But this was a prayer for the general populace. This was a prayer for everybody to pray. And the power of being able to pray it together kind of says a couple of things. Um, it says that not only are we here when we do this, and you might think of this as you pray this corporately, not only are you confessing your individual sin. But you're confessing the sin of the church and the sin of the world before the Lord. You know, have you ever thought that in a way, as, as the church comes in and gathers, that we're representatives of the world, you know, and we're saying, God, on behalf of the, the world, we confess our sin. We stand in solidarity with the sin of this world and say that we're culpable in it. That's one of the things that's powerful about a, a corporate prayer that's we in nature. That you might even find in your own kind of life's practice when you pray and confess your sin. That you might choose to use that language of we and us. Why? Because there are things to confess. Especially when we're watching on the news or in social media. All the atrocities that are out there. We're so quick to go, oh, that's, atro- that's bad, you know, and point the finger of blame. And certainly there is that. There is the enemy is working evil in and through individuals that we can name and uh, point out, but at the same time to have the humility, which I, I think that the scriptures would support us to have. To be able to say, in this machinery and this mess of what's happening out there, part of the problem is in here. You know, it reminds me of um, that big news headline in the era of G.K. Chesterton, this is a famous story of this news headline that went out, what's wrong with the world today? and the article went on to describe something in London about what was wrong with the world today. And G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter to the editor, and uh, it said this, Dear Editor, in response to your article, What is Wrong with the World Today? I write, Dear Sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Right? There's a, a truth embedded in this prayer that says, Dear Sirs, I am what's wrong with the world today, when we say we together, right? All right, so as we start to look at some of these passages, I don't need you, Google Drive. Oops, there we go. So, quoting um, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep, Even here, we're finding Cranmer differentiate himself from the received prayers of confession. For instance, I'm just going to give you an example of what prayers of confession sounded like, which aren't bad, but just listen to the difference between what he just did there and what prayers of confession sounded like. This is actually the prayer for our prayer book in Compline. It's short. It says, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault, in thought, word, and deed, in what we have left undone, And in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Not only does he say those things, but in good humanist fashion of the 16th century, but also for the sake of your heart, he pulls in this evocative language from Scripture. Almighty and most merciful Father, We've sinned, but we've erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. The beauty of this prayer that you'll see is that it's just its provoking your mind to see images. And suddenly, all, you, know, you and I have a picture. I've sinned against God, but what does that look like? Well, it looks like wandering away from my Good Shepherd. It looks like being out all alone in a, in a scary and torturous, dark place far away from my protection, the one who will lead me to water, the one who will lead me to sustenance, right? That's what confession is, is confessing, uh, confessing I've moved away. I'm one of these sheep. And we see Isaiah and, and the Psalms being quoted here, all we like sheep have gone astray. What we hear all the time during uh, Christmas and during uh, Holy Week and Good Friday, we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So interestingly, if you're connected with the scriptures, even as you pray this section, we've erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. If you know this section of Isaiah, you know that there's a a hearkening, an echoing, of even in the midst of saying, I've wandered from you, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a sense in which he wants to place Christ before us, right at the beginning of the prayer. So that as we... As we think of being wandering sheep, our good shepherd, the one who is crucified for us, is right there. It's, there's proximity there that if you had that scripture memorized, you'd, you'd get and you'd see Christ as you say. We've erred and strayed. And this other quote from the psalm that we might not pick up on. Uh, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. Right? So, we're sheep. We've strayed. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. I really like this language. Um, Devices and desires isn't necessarily the language we use anymore. Device sounds like something like my iPhone, right? But uh, when we think back to the older way that English language used to use the word device, like here in Proverbs 19.21, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand, right? Another proverb says, uh, one that Abby and I loved early on in our relationship, that I actually was the only thing I ever cross-stitched because I was trying to impress you and it didn't impress you anyway. That's a really funny story about a total misfire early in our relationship when I thought I was (laughs) doing something really cool and I cross-stitched something. I thought, she will be impressed with all the sort of patience I've taken in cross-stitching this verse. And she was just like, that's weird. Why is a guy cross-stitching right now? <laughs> um, so, if anything, it didn't do well for our relationship. But thankfully, we, we transcended that. Um, and I don't remember what the verse was. It was Proverbs 19. It was probably a little bit later. but uh, It basically said, Many are the plans of man's heart, but the Lord determines his steps. That's very much along these lines. You and I make plans. We have, we have these schemes and devices to sort of move away from the counsel of the Lord. And right here we find that we're confessing these devices, you know, these things, these schemes. I'm a schemer. Not only am I sort of a directly defiant person. I'm finding this as my kids get older and more clever is that they they devise things, you know, that's that same word group. They devise things to do and they get more and more sneaky in the way that they rebel against mom and dad, right? Many devices in their hearts. So the sin is deep. The problem, one of the problems with sort of the Roman outlook on sin is that they didn't have a deep enough, dark enough view of sin. But part of this is getting to it. It's not only these sort of bad things that I do and say, I need to sort of check and work on and confess, and then, pooh, I checked off my righteousness box, right? But it's, it's deep. It's called what, what, they, what theologians call back then concupiscence. It's this, it's this orientation of my heart away from God. It's this iniquity, which in Hebrew means bent over, curved, in, right? I'm just, I'm curved in away from God, curved in on myself. A wonderful word picture, actually a wonderful picture of incurvedness is J.R.R. Tolkien's character Gollum, okay? Because, you know, when you're introduced to Gollum, you first don't know this about him. He's some creature that's hunched over and shriveled in and loves his precious, right? You learn a little bit later in the movie and the book that he's actually a hobbit, but he's gotten so deformed because of his fixation upon his precious. He doesn't look like a hobbit anymore. The devices and desires of his own heart have so consumed him that he's become sub hobbit. Right? One of the things that we do when we confess our incurved nature is say that we're sort of subhuman in the way that we go about this because we're not oriented upward toward the maker from whom we receive promises and blessings and the declarations of the gospel but instead we're curved in on our precious little self and in fact the scoliosis and calcification of our incurvedness is so severe that we need God to break us to get us pointed back in the right direction toward Jesus the snake in the wilderness so many devices in man's heart right we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts even there is a, a really significant indicator of just how deep sin goes and the confession goes is, God, I confess to you, my heart's desires are bent in a direction that they don't need to be, you know? And I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to desires of my heart being checked. I think I might be able to correct some of my habits, but the desires that come up that cause those habits to be, that's the real problem. That's the real problem that Augustine identified as he read the scriptures. The real problem that Luther said was the aha about sin and the other reformers said was the aha as they read the scriptures that sin was much more deep, much more uh, crazy than that. We've followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, right? And even that, that followed word is still in the sheep mode, right? We're still following, we're still wandering, following what we think is, is the leader that will lead us. We have offended against thy holy laws. Um, This is just more of a quotation, but it's—I think—it's a little cumbersome in English, at least as we receive it now. But you realize that it's part of the language of the way that Old English used to talk about sin. In this episode in Chronicles, and various chiefs of Israel's tribes said unto the Israelites coming back from war, "Ye shall not bring the captives hither, for whereas we have offended against the Lord already." ye indeed to add more to our sins and to our trespass. For our trespass is great and there is fierce wrath against Israel. The language of the Lord's Prayer is in this. You can tell this was something that they paid attention to when they were translating the Lord's Prayer into English were episodes like this. But we've offended against the Lord. Language of offense. It isn't a popular notion nowadays. Um, Even in sectors of evangelicalism to talk about the wrath of God and offending God. But you can't avoid them in Scripture. We can't just do away with them. And in fact, without the offense of God and the wrath of God, there really is no need for a cross, right? Jesus could have just been a good teacher. But unfortunately, our sin is so heinous that not only does it just sort of make God go, oh, you know, there goes my little daughter, my little son again, but it is an offense. It's an offense to his holy character, right? And to be able to name that when we confess is an important part of orienting ourselves to the real truth of the situation. Sometimes when we confess, I find myself forgetting that, or when I'm so easily just choosing to sin, I forget how every one of these things is a deep offense against the infinite, holy, perfect God, right? And this is meant to sort of jar our perception of, of how deep it is uh, that we sin, the reality is the old Adam, the old Eve within us, the flesh, as Paul calls it, is always bent on making our sin less sinny, less severe than it really is, right? And so we're always wanting, and I find this in my children, it's just the instinct, instinct of, of all of us, and they're just a reflection of us, we just do it in more mature, clever ways, Right? My children will will do anything to get out of making their own sin as bad as it really is and naming it. They will blame. They will kind of lift it to a less, less offensive level in the way that they sort of justify themselves and talk about this. And I find, darn it, that's me. We have left, this is the really cool part of the prayer. That'll tie into what we were talking about last week. But we've left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Look at where this comes from. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ye ought to have done, and not to leave the other undone. So not only are we sort of confessing with these words, which are just great in and of themselves, there's something, there's a a spirit being pointed to here where God's pointing the finger at us in this prayer. He's basically saying, you are a Pharisee, you know? As Jesus is pronouncing these woes, what's being brought to mind if we're reading Scripture in this is that what we're confessing here is our Pharisaical spirit. And Jesus is about... Naming a thing what it is, calling it what it really is. And so, what I learned pretty on as I was growing in my faith, something that someone said, which is a great sort of line to help understand the the nature of this, is that not only do we commit sins of commission, we commit sins of omission. I remember the first time where that dawned on me, where a preacher or a teacher taught that to me, I realized, oh my gosh, there's a whole new level to my transgression that I had previously ignored and not thought was present in my life. But it's not only the things that I do. It's the things that I should have done that I haven't done. you know. And that's very much in line with Paul in Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do. And then what I don't want to do, I end up doing. right? Wretched man, wretched woman that I am. right? But kind of like what we were talking about last week with the prayer of humble access, one of the beauties of various points in the liturgy is that a prayer like this is meant to put us in the shoes of a biblical character. And right now we're being put in the uncomfortable position of standing accused by Jesus. Jesus didn't get angry very often, but the times he did, when he pronounced woes, in fact, which he did not do, were to the hard-hearted, broken people who simply could not recognize their own sin for what it was. And it was the Pharisees, it was the religious leaders, it was the, the priests of the day, the pastors of the day, the, the biblical scholars of the day, that he was saying, you've left things undone, you know, woe to you because you can't see it, you can't see it. And so part of what we're doing is saying, I, oh God, am a Pharisee. And we'll hang on to that thought and turn a little bit later and see something else. But this next line I love, there is no health in us. There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. I like that line for several reasons. Number one, health, I mean, in our modern day and age is a big word. It wasn't even a big word in the same way back then, but almost has a new zing to it when it comes to us, when we say, in our day and age, we're trying to eat healthily and be healthy people. Work out and make sure we don't have any GMOs or toxins or gluten or whatever it is that's just you know, destroying our bodies. To be able to say, even to the fitness fanatic, there is no health in us, is a really important admission. As much as I try to pursue this thing, apart from Christ, this body is decaying and headed toward the grave. I think that's a little bit added on there, but it's a it's a wonderful reflection that I sometimes think about in my Sort of pursuit of trying to push back aging and push back my mortality by um, fixing myself through diet and exercise, right? To be able to confess that I can't fix myself. But really, it's more this idea that was present back then. There's no soundness in my flesh, there's nothing upright about me to bring to the table. But moving on, But thou, O Lord... I don't know if you recognize this as a quote from Scripture. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Okay, so here's tying in this whole Pharisee thing. In Luke 18.13, if you recall this episode of what's called Jesus confronting the Pharisee and the publican, he pronounces woes on the Pharisee. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're like whitewashed tombs. And then he points out, this notorious sinner, this culturally... People that the religious people go, that's a bad person right there, the publican. Standing far off. Would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. Compared to the Pharisee who was praying boldly just all, all his wonderful prayers before the Lord. The publican couldn't even... Just so aware of his sin and brokenness. Couldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven, but smote his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. But thou, O oh Lord, have mercy upon me, a miserable offender, right? Evidently, Frank Limehouse still signs his emails, miserable offender, or something like that. I think it's great. Um, and the publican, standing far off, he wouldn't lift his eyes. And he smote his breast. And all of a sudden, we're, we're caught, and God is basically saying, You Pharisee, be the publican now. Come clean. Beat your breast and be honest. Stop running. Stop hiding, right? We're in the shoes of this poor soul who is crying out to God for mercy, right? So in this prayer is all this evocative language that kind of puts us into a framework of a biblical character. And kind of like I said last week, it might be an interesting exercise of prayer to place ourselves in the shoes of a character and almost pray as though we are that person and then eerily find the ways that, in fact, you are that person, I want us to listen, if you turn to the back of your sheep to a, a song that I find captures the spirit of the publican beating their breast. It's a song called I Shall Not Want. It's a confession uh, by one of my favorite artists nowadays. Her name's Audrey Assad. I don't know about you but that always moves moves me makes me cry because it's kind of a different sort of level of confession sort of confessing some like you wouldn't think normally to confess the fear of serving others or the fear of death or trial but it's sort of confessing a comfortability the fear of humility like that I might be forgotten I might be just a person who's insignificant but deliver me from that Lord you know From the need to be understood, to always have to sort of justify myself before others. From the need to be accepted. From the fear of being lonely, which I think is a great fear of many people. I think great fear of many people who have lived in Birmingham their whole lives, who are surrounded by people they know and love. And then a great fear of people who have moved to Birmingham in recent times. Uh, Deliver me, O Lord. What I love about the spirit of this song is it echoes back to obviously um, Psalm 23, I shall not want. And then we're right back there with the Lord our shepherd, wandering sheep, right? Um, So I don't know, I don't know what's stirring in your heart today, but I pray that you find the balm and the comfort of the Jesus who will never let us go. The Jesus who will never let us go. The next section of the prayer. I actually just noticed this last night. And it was because of a conversation with, again, my very brilliant wife. Who uh, said God's God's been telling her something specific over the last several months. Women's retreat, women's Bible studies, even in worship and a few sermons she's heard. The idea that the gospel is not only there to kind of forgive, but it's there to restore. And it's this word restore that I think is a really powerful word and um, Abby was just telling me about how significant that word is right now in her life. And so I think it's interesting that two parallel statements, spare thou those, O Lord, who confess their faults, restore thou those who are penitent. You know, There's a, a sense in which they're meant to be paired together. It's not only just that we're spared from the wrath of God. There's a restoration that God is enacting and working in your life and my life. And it's something that we can pray as part of our confession. God, restore me. You know, mm-hmm. And I commanded the Levites from Nehemiah that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep to the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God. Concerning this also, spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. You see the tie-in with the next line. According to thy promises, right? According to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I say that Christ Jesus was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. For all the promises of God are in Him. I love this verse. For all the promises of God in Christ are yes, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Right? One of the things that it does is it restores us according to God's promises. And God's promises are nothing else than, I give you Jesus. I love you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Spare thou those who confess their faults. Restore us according to thy promises. You see, this is all hinged not on the not on even sort of the sincerity of your own confession. How sincere you are. I used to think I sort of had to conjure up God's action by how sincere I presented myself, how deep my surrender was, you know, or how significant and sold out I was in this moment. And God just says, oh, you silly kid you'll eventually learn that you cannot be sold out enough. uh, Which is why I sent Jesus. To be the sold out Christian you could never be, right? According to his promises about what he's promised in sending that Christ to us. And then this line, and grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, right? I love that line, for his sake. I wonder, so, this is just a rumination, but I wonder if I might dare offer an improvement on Cranmer's words here, that would actually bring more of Cranmer's Luther-esque theology at play. Because it is the case that it is for Christ's sake. We never want to take that away. But grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, and then the next part goes, that we may forever live a godly, righteous, and sober life. Why? For whose sake do we live a godly, righteous, and sober life? Certainly for Christ, for his glory. But as Luther would say... Uh, as he read the scriptures, my good works aren't for God, they're for my neighbor, right? God doesn't need my good works, but my neighbor does. And and so I think a fitting emendation could be, and grant, O most merciful Father, for Christ's sake and for my neighbor's sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. Because this world needs the good works of Christians, right? This world needs it desperately. So grant that that might be a reality, that, as it says, we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. This quote from Titus. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And what teaches us to deny ungodliness and world lust, worldly lusts? Grace. God's grace does. The grace of God teaches us that denying all ungodliness and worldly lusts We should live, and here's the the trifecta, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So even there, he's saying, and that's beautiful, he's strongly Protestant in in, in the way he's wanting us to, even as we're going to talk about good works in this other side, this restoration that the gospel comes, grant God that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. There's a hearkening to a passage of scripture that reminds us that only the grace of God that does it anyway, right? There's a humility of, of approaching God with our good works. So, any thoughts or questions? Mm-hmm. Just interesting that confession brings restoration. You know, mm-hmm. If a kid's wrong, you know, if a kid, kid says something new to me, a hurts me, or whatever, there's brokenness there. When they can come to me and confess, just brings restoration. Confession brings restoration. It's interesting that oftentimes our default is what brings restoration is being good and being better and not doing that bad thing again. But maybe it is that confession brings restoration. And how do you live in that meantime? You know, how do we how do I relate to this child until they've been good enough? We're never gonna be good enough until we see Jesus. So the only way we can live with him in that interim time is just confession. Confession. A marvelous practice for the Christian daily, multiple times a day. Any other reflections? All right, friends. Go in peace.